This is the History of the British Isles, Episode 5, Collapse to Collapse, Part 2. Imagine you are Celt standing on the cliffs of Dover. Recently, trade with the mainland had stopped. The similarly cultured Gauls had been completely destroyed by the people of the south. You see huge ships on the horizon, slowly moving closer. As these ships come into focus, you see armed men on them. Masses of men carrying swords and square shields. You run up to your village and warn the tribesmen. As you arrive back to the cliffs with your army, you can see the ships pulling closer to the land, looking up at you and your men. When they see you, they move further along the coast and you head back to your village. The year was 55 BCE, as I'll be using that year system, as it's a bit more secular and universal. This is the first invasion of Caesar into Britain. The army will eventually gain a beachhead further along the coast of Kent. This campaign will be a bit of a failure, and the Britons cannot be declared victors either. Technically, Caesar gained more in the form of a small group of puppet states, but the resources expended far outweighed the gains. It is believed that he landed at Pegwell Bay on the Isle of Tharnet, off the coast of Kent. On arrival, the Romans were met by British forces, who initially scored successes, pushing the Romans back into the water. Eventually, the Romans were able to use their ship catapults to defeat the Britons, but this was no great victory, nor start to a campaign. The Britons were first awed by the Romans and sent a tribute to Caesar, but disaster struck. A huge storm beached the Roman ships and made them unusable. This gave the Britons hope, and they attacked a scavenging legion, but were pushed back when another legion arrived to defend them. Every time the Romans pushed away the Britons, they regrouped to attack stronger than before, this time at the Roman camp itself. This attack was the biggest failure of the campaign. The Britons were slaughtered in by masses of Roman and allied forces. By the coming of winter, Caesar returned to Gaul with hostages and a group of puppet states in Britain, claiming victory. I guess it is, but, as I said, the resources used were meant for taking territory, not skirmishing with the Britons. Caesar would return, this time more success, but he would never truly conquer Britain. When he came back, one year had gone past. Caesar would not, was not willing to live through his own mistakes. The invasion was more highly planned, and, and regular food supplies were ordered to be sent through to the beachhead. Caesar left... A fully ready, left with a fully ready army and set off for the already established beachhead, the one true gain of the previous campaign. The army set off at 800 ships, including some merchant vessels. Imagine what I talked about earlier from the perspective of the Brits. Imagine looking out at that fleet on the horizon, massing like a swarm in the water. Imagine pure fee- fear remembrance of the previous campaign and the Roman victory. This time, you would not expect to actually win. Some may some may even be drafting their surrenders already. When Caesar landed, there was no opposition. Lulled into a false sense of security, he left one of his commanders with the ships and set off inland on a night march. He was met by the Britons on the River Stour, a minor river in Kent. Caesar's army won and pushed the Britons back into the forest, at which point the Britons again regrouped and were again repelled. I bet Caesar was a bit exasperated at this point, getting a bit bored of repelling badly planned counterattacks. 
The next morning, Caesar got news from his commanders. Roughly 40 ships were washed away in a storm. This called Caesar to withdraw all of his troops and replan the attack. His men spent 10 days repairing the boats and also building a fortified camp around the base. He also sent word back to the continent to send out more ships. To his credit, that the fo- it, w- it is to his credit that the forces recovered and no mean feat. After this setback, Caesar went on the offensive and crossed the river once more. He was met by the combined forces of the Britons under their general Cassivinalius. Before the, the invasion, Cassivinalius had been at war in most of Britain, but when the Romans invaded, they, de- they decided he was the best possible leader. The Britons again attacked a foraging party sent out by the Romans, like they did on Caesar's previous campaign. They were repelled once more and routed by the Roman cavalry. This led to Cassivinalius ultimately deciding that a pitched battle would result in slaughter. They sent back the majority of his army and used a small corps of chariots and a knowledge of the terrain to operate a guerrilla campaign against Caesar's forces. The Romans advanced to the Thames and pushed past a highly defended fortress, apparently using a war elephant. The Tr- Trinovit tribe, who had previously been suffering under the rule of Cassivinalius, supported Caesar who restored their deposed king, Medicabrius. Cassivinalius was put under siege in his force, possibly at Weath Hampstead. Eventually, the, the, British, the great British general Cassivinalius was forced to surrender and hand over hostages and pay tribute. Caesar went back to Gaul, essentially abandoning his gains. This was the only one true mistake that he made on this mostly glorious campaign. This was the end of Iron Age Britain as we know it. As I said last week, Ireland was continuing to stay within the confines of the Iron Age, but but their next coming but they but then their coming would most likely come next. Next week I'll cover the submission of England and Wales and the New Age of Scotland. They will now be fighting to avoid their own death. The thing of the week is what as a person Cassivinalius. Originally a great warlord, eventually he'll be fighting an even greater power and defending his own lands. Though he may not have been kind, he was the last hope for England to avoid Rome. Goodbye!